Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're discussing the role of checks and balances in democracy. What are they? What are they good for? And why are they so controversial just at the moment? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to what is, in fact, the first ever episode of UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Through this podcast, we plan to explore key themes of contemporary politics and let you into some of our research findings that we think the wider world needs to know about. Today, we're discussing the role of checks and balances in democracy. The idea that democracy needs checks and balances has a long pedigree. It's the idea that power should never be concentrated too far in a single pair of hands, that policymaking should be subject to careful scrutiny and questioning, that, as James Madison famously put it in the Federalist Papers in 1788, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. But the idea that we need checks and balances is currently being questioned by at least some politicians in the UK and in other democracies around the world. It's suggested that we need a government that can act decisively, that leaders should be able to implement the policies on which they have been elected, and that parliaments, courts and others should not be able to interfere. So what are the arguments in favour of having checks and balances and what are the arguments against? Should we look upon different kinds of checks and balances in different ways? And what are the contemporary tensions bringing these debates to the fore? Well, we're going to explore such questions with three of our leading thinkers on constitutional politics and law. Meg Russell is Professor of British and Comparative Politics at the UCL School of Public Policy and Director of the Constitution Unit. Richard Bellamy is Professor of Political Science, also in the UCL School of Public Policy. And Jeff King is Professor of Law in the UCL Faculty of Laws. Welcome to you all. We'll explore some big and deep questions as we go on, but let's start off with a flavour of what's happening in the world today. Meg, could I ask you, why are people concerned about challenges to checks and balances in the UK at the moment? Well, from the UK perspective, um, you, could, you could trace this back quite some time, really, and say that for a long time, there have been concerns that people are rather turned off politics, that they don't have a lot of trust in political institutions. And so the support for political institutions has perhaps not been as high as you would hope. Um, but I think that we've seen a change in mood, particularly around and since the Brexit referendum, which challenged some of the fundamental principles of the British constitution, in particularly the sense that parliament should be at the center of the constitution, that parliament was sovereign. So after the referendum, parliament's role was brought into question in terms of the implementation of Brexit. And that dragged in the role of the courts as well, because very early in the process, there was a, there was a legal challenge um, which went to the um, Supreme Court over whether Parliament should have a say on the triggering of Article 50. This became very, very controversial because some people felt that this was trying to overturn the will of the people. And indeed, the rhetoric of the government was very much that it should be able to represent the will of the people, that it should be allowed to 
continue unimpeded with Brexit and that Parliament should get out of the way and that the courts in particular should get out of the way and shouldn't be putting Parliament back in the centre of the process. Actually, um, Parliament didn't stand in the way of the triggering of Article 50 at all, but there were very long and protracted arguments about the nature of Brexit, which got very, very nasty. And we moved on in autumn of 2019 to the, the very unusual situation where Prime Minister Boris Johnson actually prorogued Parliament, ceased parliamentary sitting in order to try and push ahead with Brexit, that was then overturned in the Supreme Court. So again, you're seeing controversies about Parliament's role and the court's role. And throughout that whole process, there was increasingly kind of angry rhetoric coming from politicians, not just Johnson, but also his predecessor, Theresa May, um, about Parliament getting in the way, about the courts getting in the way. Ultimately, we ended up with a general election. And the rhetoric in that general election was very, very negative uh, towards Parliament and the courts. And also um, in the election campaign, you started to see negativity about uh, the civil service, about, the, about independent media. And actually, this wasn't all coming from the right. Um, there was some of this rhetoric coming particularly from uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party as also seeing the civil service and the media as biased politically in some way against them. So a lot of rhetoric against those kinds of bodies which would normally be acting as a check on executive power. And since the election, we've seen threats to weaken and abolish regulators. And most recently, um, it, you know, this all began a long time ago, but the COVID situation has added a new dimension to this because in the UK and actually in countries all around the world, part, governments are trying to push ahead with very rapid policymaking in an emergency situation. And often that means shutting parliaments in particular out of the process. They just want to get on with it unimpeded. And this is causing a lot of anxiety and a rising amount of anxiety among parliamentarians in the UK that they are being shut out. Um, it's interesting that you talked there about the institutions, the bodies that would normally check those in power. Um, we sometimes have an idea of British politics that it doesn't have checks and balances. Uh, famous is the phrase from the 1970s from Lord Helsham that this is a system of elective dictatorship. Um, is that a mischaracterization of the tradition of British politics? Do, should we think that checks and balances are part of the British political system? Absolutely, we should. I mean, the, the nature of checks and balances in the UK is rather different to in some other countries. You know, in the US, famously, you have a separation of powers between the legislature, the courts and the executive. We haven't traditionally had such a degree of separation, but there are more subtle political checks, which Richard might want to say more about because he's written you know, a, very, a very excellent book on the political constitution as opposed to the legal constitution. I think that the checks come in more subtle ways through the media, through public opinion, within political parties, in parliament. So the mood on the back benches in the governing party is always very important. And this is one of the tensions that we're currently seeing that uh, Johnson's government is seeking to override the will of parliament by which you primarily mean its own backbenchers and his own backbenchers are getting very, very angry about this. So those political balances are not really being appreciated by the government in the way that perhaps they should be. And this is causing a lot of tension and instability. 
Interesting. We'll explore a lot of those different types of checks and balances in a bit. Um, but Jeff, could I go to you next? Are we are we seeing similar challenges to checks and balances in, in other democracies? Yes, we are. I mean, essentially, this is associated with the rise of populism, which is a global phenomenon. We see it in the US, of course, in Brazil, around Europe, India, and even to an extent in authoritarian countries such as China and Russia, whose leaders appeal to popular approval of the people to back their policies. Um, and I think try to have a democratic veneer to what they're doing in that kind of way. And there are two elements, I think, of that populist um, trend. One is that it's anti-establishment. And in the rhetoric, checks and balances tend to be associated with the establishment. And this subverts traditional right-wing politics because it's anti-elitist in character, but it also subverts left politics um, because it's appealing to the, to the excluded classes or those who think that they're excluded in offering their recipe for the, the solutions of the time. It's, it's kind of both right and left, which shares similarities with, with um, uh, fascism in the early 20th century in Europe. It's also anti-pluralist. So it's anti-establishment and it's anti-pluralist. And that means that it suggests that sort of uh, that you're, you're with us or against us. It's associated with the rhetoric of the will of the people that any opposition to these populists is uh, somehow undemocratic because they have the will of the people behind them. Now in that form, you've seen this challenge throughout Latin America, not just in Brazil under Bolsonaro, but, but elsewhere in Latin America across the 90s and the noughties. In Eastern Europe, uh, we have it in Poland and Hungary most obviously, but as I said also in places like Russia. And of course, in older Europe, we have that as an aspect of far right nationalist politics in Greece, Spain, Italy, France, Germany. Some would argue that's, that's what's happened in the UK as well. Now, the tools that I see come up repeatedly in, these, in this phenomenon are a resort to referenda or, or, or uh, advocacy of using referendum, referendums, referenda, however you want to call it. Uh, so that's part of the, the policy of the National Front in France, for instance. They want to get EU referendums onto the agenda. Uh, a different style of legislative politics, a majoritarian style of take no prisoner legislative politics and a rejection of the kind of politics of compromise that we've seen successively in different forms of government, uh, including the government of Theresa May. Uh, constitutional amendment abroad is a frequent uh, objective. Once you have the decisive majority, you seek to amend the constitution to remove a check. You justify it by reference to the will of the people stacking the judiciary, weakening the civil service, and expanding significantly on executive power uh, in order to uh, manage whether it's a pandemic or it's just whatever crisis has been identified by populists as existing in the society. You wanna seek more executive power to deal with that crisis. And those tools, all of which are evident to some extent in what's happened in the UK uh, since the Brexit uh, referendum, have existed in the playbook of populists around the world for, for a significant amount of time. Fascinating, Jeff. Thank you. Richard, you have a particular experience of European countries. Italy is a country that you spend a lot of time on. Does what uh, Meg and Jeff have said resonate with you as well? Yes, I mean, as Jeff was was saying, it's uh, that there are, is in Europe a number of uh, populist uh, movements. Um, 
I suppose they've gone the furthest in Hungary and Poland. And there what one has is on the one hand, a, a, an attempt to, to remove or not abide by legal checks, by which you might sort of say in particular, not to, not to abide by a due process. And one way of, of undermining the possibility of legal checks is to pack the judiciary. And on the other hand, a uh, disinclination to, to have um, political uh, balance. And that's usually done by seeking to delegitimize the opposition. So instead of them being conceived of as uh, a loyal opposition, as we call it in, in the UK, there's a tendency to say, to treat all opposition as somehow anti-patriotic, anti, -patriotic, anti uh, the, uh, the, the country, uh, uh, even to insinuate that they're being manipulated by external forces or, or by mysterious elites against the people. And so that seems to be how this, democratic backsliding works, it's, it's precisely the removal of checks and in particular, any notion of balance and of pluralism. So all three of you are using very negative language to talk about uh, these challenges to checks and balances. So Richard, can I stick with you and ask you, you're a, you're a theorist of uh, politics and constitutions. What would you say is the value of checks and balances to a democratic system. Right, well, I think it's, it, we, we tend to talk about checks and balances as if they're the same, but I think it's, it's uh, helpful to, to try and distinguish them, uh, even if they both have the same idea behind them. So I think both are trying to prevent arbitrary power, that is the capacity of the executive in particular, but, but any powerful, body or individual from ruling without taking into account the interests of others. And a check does it in a kind of negative way. And I suppose judicial rights-based judicial review is, is one example. In the sense it says, no, you can't do that. I'm much more favorable, I should say, to balances because balances have a more positive role. What they're trying to do is include more voices and sort of say, well, before you make that decision, you should think a little bit about its consequences, involve as many voices as possible who are going to be affected by that. And that tends to be a more political way of, of thinking about it. So balancing mechanisms are often simply allowing competition between political parties, having plural voting systems, having bicameralism and, and so on. However, having distinguished the two, it can also be said that if you over-egg the balance, if you are overly inclusive, it, it can become a check in its own uh, right. I mean, Fritz Sharp talking about federalism in Germany talked about the joint decision trap that you can get when you, you multiply the veto points. And arguably the US constitution, which you quoted uh, from the Federalist Papers, your opener, it, it's so checked. The balances are so, are, are so much checks rather than real balances designed, of course, initially to protect slave owning uh, states 
from, from being outvoted, that one begins to wonder whether it's democratic at all. So I think balance is a good thing and checks potentially erode confidence in the system to be responsive to people. And, and it's getting the balance between checks and balances right, which is all important. And would you say at, at the moment in the UK, just to think of the UK, do we get that balance right or should we be pushing in one or other direction? I have tended to be uh, someone who, who favours, as, as, as Meg uh, intimated earlier, the, the uh, traditional system. I think the failure is that political parties are failing to be adequately responsive to, to people. And that is, has led to a, um, a, a certain delegitimizing of all checks and, and balances because people are looking either for populist mechanisms like referendum and direct rule, or others worried about that look to to non-democratic, non-majoritarian mechanisms to impose on people the views that they believe are correct. And I think the real challenge for those of us who are unhappy with populism is not to there, think the way of dealing with it is to check all democratic impulses. Instead, I think we need to somehow revitalize democracy in a way that allows balance to be there, that is the inclusion of many voices within it, uh, but in a way whereby people feel that they are actually involved in the political process. And it's, it's important to, to revive the sense that balances are a good thing, listening to your fellow citizens is a good thing, uh, and having an attentive government is a good thing because that makes them also more efficient and effective. But um, we should avoid looking for checks which somehow are outside the political process uh, because I fear that that will lead to a great deal of disillusionment and feed the populist reaction. Meg, um, Richard there has characterised the value of checks and balances in terms of preventing arbitrary power and including a diversity of voices. W would you uh, share that characterization of what is valuable about having checks and balances in the system? I think what Richard has said about inclusivity is, is really, really important. Checks and balances are about making policymaking uh, inclusive. So if you go back to the uh, example after the Brexit referendum, where people, where the government is claiming to speak for the will of the people, um, Jeff referred to that term as well, you know, there never is a single will of the people. Maybe on that occasion, there was a 52-48 decision that we should leave the EU, and indeed that is what we've gone on to do. Um, but the will of the people is never united, and it certainly wasn't united there. One, the most classic argument in favour of checks and balances is the protection of minorities um, and the fear of the so-called tyranny of the majority. Um, and there you most obviously think about um, groups such as ethnic minorities um, or maybe disabled people who, if the majority was taking all of the decisions, their rights wouldn't be protected. But actually, in our system and in many systems, if you allowed the government to just govern unimpeded, they wouldn't even be representing the majority. I mean, the, the, this government has a large majority in parliament. 
but it was voted for by somewhere between 43 and 44% of the electorates in December 2019. So the Conservative Party doesn't actually have majority support. And you can also see from what's going on at the moment that the Conservative Party itself is internally plural. There are different views within the Conservative Party. Um, so what you need to do is let those views in. But there's another argument which I think relates to something that Richard was saying about the importance of inclusive decision making. It actually makes for better decisions. You know, when decisions are made with it by a small cabal without adequate um, open scrutiny, you know, what parliaments are there for is to get arguments out into the open and have decisions made in the open so that executive decision making is subjected to questioning, to scrutiny and to accountability. And the concerns at the moment are that there are a small number of people inside government making decisions, for example, on COVID without those being adequately thought through and getting those decisions out into the open in parliament, asking tough questions, forcing ministers to think through the answers to those questions would result in better policy. So, you know, it's not just a principled position, it's also a pragmatic position that, that uh, openness and accountability makes for better decisions. And do we actually have really good evidence for that? I mean, the, the, the kind of logic of the process that you set out there makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, a lot of the people who are arguing for reform of our governmental systems are basically saying we need effective government. And at the moment, kind of picking up what Richard was saying, there's a danger that government is too checked and isn't able to make effective policy. Do we do we have good evidence to counteract that? Well, I feel I have some evidence. I mean, the, the forum which I know most about is Parliament. Um, I've written several books about the workings of Parliament and the legislative process. If you speak to uh, people who have served as ministers or people who've worked on the inside of government as civil servants, they will say that preparing for parliamentary appearances makes them really think through whether their policy will be able to withstand questioning and scrutiny. They don't want to be embarrassed on the floor of the House of Commons. So behind the scenes, they do lots and lots of thinking to work out whether they really have thought through all of the weak points in their policy. Quite often when they turn up and are subject to scrutiny, people don't find the weak points, but that's because the thinking through has been done behind the scenes beforehand. So I think, you know, that it's quite subtle, but the evidence is there. Interesting. Uh, Jeff, uh, Richard and Meg have been talking there mainly about political balances rather than legal checks. Um, mm -hmm. You're a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's your view on this? Well, uh, I, I largely have the same view. Uh, my view is that good democratic policymaking requires, good democratic policymaking requires more considerate, more considered judgment than the kind of judgments we get in populist politics. It's more iterative, there's proposals and reactions. It's more responsive to evidence. It's more considerate of the costs of doing things one way or another. And so it's more farsighted in character than the kind of debates that we have uh, taking place in, uh, in, in a populist rhetoric. And that's why the legislative process is quite protracted and it should be protracted. You know, a good statute should take a good six months to become law between the time when it's it's introduced into parliament and it completes its passage and gets royal assent because there's a there must be a lot of room for 
discussion of it, for the consideration of the measure in, in select committees by, by the various committees of, of the House of Lords, as well as the House of Commons. That process uh, is both inclusive of various viewpoints and it's more evidence-led because there's more time during that process to consider the proposals that are put forth by the government. Now, the idea that that process, as sclerotic as it could be portrayed, the, the idea that it subverts the popular will and is so is undemocratic is nonsense. Uh, in a representative democracy, we have established ways for changing the law. And these processes include procedures also for changing the law when, when, it's very, when it's necessary to do so very rapidly. But if you were to change the law rapidly all the time, it wouldn't really be democratic because it is the government that writes nearly all of the bills that go before parliament. For the vast majority of elected representatives, they know very little about the content of those bills until they're presented in parliament. And if you rush a bill through, as they did with the coronavirus bill this spring, a large bill of 350 pages, if you rush it through in three days, it's quite clear that very, very few elected parliamentarians have the chance to comment on the substance of the bill. And they, when making those comments, they do so on the understanding that the likelihood of any changes being made are minuscule because it's impractical to do so under a rapid scale. So the idea that the protracted process is undemocratic, I think reflects an ignorance of the manifold ways in which different viewpoints are taken into account um, uh, in that process. Now you asked me about law in particular. Yeah, Yeah. okay. I'm coming to that. So the rule of law, I think, is a good example of an important check. If a country is indifferent to the rule of law, then democracy just won't be able to function because you need a system of law to ensure that democratic choices that were made in the past will be respected appropriately in the future both by public authorities and by private citizens. If you, count, if you cannot count on judges to apply the law, if you can't count on public authorities to respect and be bound by the law, or indeed if you encourage the public to take a lax attitude towards the law, as I think we're currently seeing in respect to the COVID-19 regulations, you have a very significant problem with dem- democracy. The problem is going to be that there'll be a slow erosion uh, or even rapid deterioration of respect for the idea of public rulemaking, which is at the heart of of democracy. People will take that process less seriously, which can in turn promote uh, various forms of chaos and disorder, and ultimately encourage citizens to resort to self-help to get things done, that'd be a breakdown of trust. And can I ask the same question as I asked to Meg? Do we we actually have evidence uh, in order to back up that claim that there's a negative effect if we uh, do start to interfere with respect for the rule of law? I think that the, um, the, so the, the rhetoric of, uh, that we've seen since the advent of Brexit has shown negative effects in, in two ways, really. The most dramatic is probably in current legislative proposals to allow uh, the government to make regulations that will apply notwithstanding any uh, inconsistent relative, uh, relevant rule of domestic law. That is that they can literally make regulations which are above the law. That, that, that proposal is on the table, it's unprecedented in law. And I think that the, the thing that gave parliament, the government the guts to put such a bill 
uh, on the legislative agenda right now is the belief that the public is behind them in get, getting Brexit done. And it will justify setting aside a principle, the rule of law, which, is, which has been around for a very long time. A second example, I think, is in the public's attitude towards COVID-19 regulations. This is a bit anecdotal, but I think it's, it's backed up by reports I've seen. And essentially, when the lockdown commenced, it was widely observed by just about everyone. But as it progressed, people began to flout the rules and the enforcement of those rules was very lax. The situation deteriorated to the point now where when we're looking at whether local lockdowns are working, we can't really compare them with a national lockdown because the national lockdown was actually observed. Local lockdowns, the rate of compliance is quite low. And this is producing an intolerable level of policy confusion. And it raises questions about what kind of law could get the job done at the moment. So the rule of law is very important to democracy and to order. So let me ask each of you quite concretely and uh, quick answers, if you will. Um, should judicial review in the UK be more constrained than it is at present? The UK government has, seems to be suggesting that there should be constraints put on the power of the judiciary to tell the elected branches that certain things they have done uh, are not permissible. Uh, is it right to suggest greater constraints? Um, Jeff first. No, I think it's not right. The The role of the judiciary in this country is already quite constrained, despite what we're hearing in Parliament. And these two most controversial cases are uh, were both about ensuring that Parliament's rights weren't constrained unduly by the executive exercising prerogative powers. And that just exposes the absurdity in a way. It, the, the judicial power is a real problem, but it's not a real problem in Britain, in my view. Richard? No, I agree. I, I, I think uh, that these two particular cases were about actually uh, putting some balance back into the Constitution. They didn't decide the issue in particular uh, that was under question. They, was, they, they were sort of saying that rather the executive couldn't just act on whatever it felt like. It had to uh, open itself up to, to parliamentary and democratic uh, scrutiny and accountability. So I think uh, on the whole, we have a system of what's seen as a weak form of judicial review. And I think that that gets the balance right. It's about balancing rather than checking. Meg? Well, traditionally, the checks in the British Constitution have been political, not legal. We've tended, tended to sort out our arguments politically, particularly in, in, in Parliament. And I think that those kind of political checks um, and conventions, actually, they exist in every system. So listening to public opinion, listening to your political party, listening to the media, they're not hard legal checks, but they're very, very important in all systems, but in our system in particular. The difficulty is, I think, when you stop listening to them, when you stop following the conventions. And one of the things that has happened is that matters have been driven into the courts. The Miller case in particular on prorogation was caused precisely because the prime minister did not follow the conventions and decided to prorogue parliament for five weeks. There was nothing legally at that point to stop him doing that. The check should have been political. He should have known not to do something so unprecedented. And the fact that he took that decision, forced it into the court, caused the court 
um, to rule what he had done unlawful, um, as the others have said, to get the decision back to Parliament where it should have been in the first place. And so it's quite tough then to turn around and blame the judges for that fact. I think if something is eroding in our system, it's respect for conventions and traditional political checks. And that forces you in the direction of a more legal constitution, which the government doesn't seem to want. That leads on directly, Meg, to a last question that I wanted to put to each of you, uh, which is, what is your most pressing concern? You've all clearly expressed concerns about the current state of affairs in the UK and around the world. And what should be done about it? Meg, do you want to go first? Well, I think my to express it in a sort of generalised way, I think we're all very concerned about this potential um, drive of where populism pushes you in the direction of, you know, it's an anti-political movement, it pushes you in the direction of the dismantling of checks and balances, and where that gets you in the end is to an authoritarian state um, with an executive um, which, which doesn't accept any checks on its own power. My fear is that um, we're heading in that direction in the UK, um, and that MPs don't realize where we're going. I think the international experience, which was laid out by the other two contributors, is really useful because there is a clear pattern here. Um, we've seen it played out in various other countries, and we can see some of that pattern here and now in the UK. So I think the really important job is to educate politicians as to how we do appear to be in at least the nursery slopes um, of this slide um, and to encourage them to stop it because in the end they are the only ones who really can. Richard? Yes, I mean, I, I very much agree with uh, Meg's uh, an analysis. Uh, I think, as I was mentioning before, that uh, one of the most important things is to revitalize uh, the competitiveness of our political system. I think uh, competi electoral competition between political parties, which forces them to, in a sense, fish for votes across the electorate uh, and, in a sense, subject themselves to peer review of uh, all citizens, is an important, really important uh, aspect of, of our balancing and checking. And in some respects, the revitalization of that system lies with politicians themselves uh, uh, and preventing parties becoming sort of cartels and cliques of professional politicians and instead somehow engaging with citizens and, and promoting participation of citizens within them. So I see that as as uh, really important because if one doesn't get citizens on board and politicians on board, then authoritarianism is in the wings, I'm afraid. And, and that is a, a very real worry, as Meg was saying. And Jeff? I guess my main fear is the with the aggrandizement of executive power uh, as being the main democratic institution. Uh, seeing the executive or government as being the main engine for democracy, which has a tendency uh, everywhere we've discussed, including Britain, to marginalize both parliament and the law courts and the idea of legal control, as well as several other democratic institutions, such as the civil service, respect for international law, and compromising with other parties. So I think 
that tendency and the tools that I've seen used for that include, you know, enacting skeleton bills in parliament, putting them before parliament where they give wide delegated powers to government, resort to the made affirmative procedure, which is where um, statutory instruments take effect as law, but are only debated in parliament well after they, they come into force. As we're and seeing then, a great deal on COVID just at the moment. Indeed, indeed. Even when the measures are used to relax lockdown measures, they're described as urgent and emergency regulations, and they're not debated for weeks. Uh, and, um, and the political theater is a non-event by that point. Um, so those are the tools. The solution, I think, is, is a bit more um, uh, un- <laughs> less concrete. I think it's really about affirming a politics of inclusion and of compromise and having political leadership in respect of values like the rule of law and the democratic process that we have. And I think that the various tools for doing that were outlined by, by Richard and Meg quite well, and I wouldn't add to that. Maybe I could just say, say one more thing, that it strikes me that these moves, um, they're fundamentally illiberal, but they're also fundamentally unconservative. And therefore, one has to have some hope that the backbenches in the Conservative Party will wake up to these dangers. And I think I I do feel a bit of positivity that they are waking up in that way. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to all of you for taking part, to Meg Russell, Richard Bellamy and Jeff King. Uh, I think we've given a lot of food for thought there for people in the corridors of power. It's striking the degree to which all three of you have emphasised the important responsibilities of politicians and political leaders to get a grip on this current situation. So thank you all so much for taking part in that discussion. Next time, we are looking at the impact of living with risk. Amidst pandemic and economic recession, living with the possibility that something bad may happen to you is part of many people's daily reality. Some political philosophers argue that that's good for us, but recent research by our colleague Lucy Barnes suggests otherwise. We'll be talking to Lucy about that research and its implications for public policy. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.